Well, maybe you've heard stories of God's grace similar to that of Jenny's. I grew up in a Christian home where the gospel was regularly taught to me. I was in a church every time the doors were opened. I went to VBS in a nearby Christian camp year after year, and many of the friends that I had were good and godly influences on my life. Yet while I was in high school, I began running from, with the wrong crowd. My life quickly began spiraling out of control. I turned to the opposite sex for my identity and drugs to be able to fit in with that. It got so bad that I was kicked out of my house, arrested, and dropped out of school. And you won't believe some of the other things that I did. But then God saved me and radically changed my life. And now, praise God, I'm not like my old friends, and I no longer do those bad things that I once did. Instead, I wake up with new meaning and purpose each morning and seek to do good each day. I serve my church, I go on mission trips, I give to local ministry efforts and share the gospel. I couldn't be happier, and the good news is that this can happen to you as well. Now, the first thing I think that we need to say about this testimony is, praise God. Praise God for such an incredible work in this woman's life. I mean, what an amazing story of God's grace. And yet, there's also something else that we have to watch out for with a testimony like this. And that's when our stories of God's grace put the focus more on us rather than upon God and his grace. And this morning, we get to hear another testimony with a different emphasis And that's Jonah's testimony, his story of how God came in and saved him. And what we see in his testimony is that the accent isn't placed upon him, but rather upon praising God for his rescuing grace in the face of impending death. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. You can find it there on page 774 in the red seatback Bible in front of you. Last week, we saw that Jonah was on the run. The Lord commissioned Jonah to go and to call out against the city of Nineveh. And Jonah didn't just get up to go out. Jonah got up to go down, away from the Lord in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah's problem wasn't ultimately Nineveh, though. Instead, it was God's desire to save his Ninevite enemies. And so Jonah gets on a ship headed to the Spanish coastal city of Tarshish. And yet, though he runs, he cannot outrun the always present God. And so the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea, putting everyone's life in danger, and eventually the cat gets out of the bag that the storm is really Jonah's fault. (laughs) And the only way for the storm to calm down is for the sailors to just throw Jonah overboard. And once they do, the storm ceases. The sailors, the pagan sailors, respond by fearing the Lord, and Jonah is just left sinking toward the bottom of the sea. The great irony of chapter 1 was that Jonah thought that he could run from Nineveh so that they wouldn't find mercy, and he ends up actually in a boat with Gentiles who find mercy. What Jonah didn't realize was that fleeing The will of the Lord was foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. And so we're left here with Jonah just sinking to the bottom 
of the sea, wondering what's going to happen to him. Is he going to die? Is this the end for Jonah? What's going to happen with God's message to Nineveh, his will to go there? Well, to find out, we've got to look at the next scene, which is Jonah chapter 2. Listen as I read Jonah chapter 2, beginning really in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, it may seem out of place for this prayer of thanksgiving to be sandwiched in the middle of a story like this. But throughout the Scriptures, this is actually quite normal. For instance, after God delivered His people from Egypt in Exodus 15, what do we get? Moses' song of God delivering them. Or in Judges 5, when Deborah and Barak defeated the king of Canaan, they sang of God's deliverance in the midst of that narrative. And so here we have Jonah's prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God for delivering them. And I think the main idea that's being made is this, that we can rejoice in salvation when we turn to the Lord of salvation. We can rejoice in salvation when we turn to the Lord of salvation. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, then we can turn to Him, and we can thank Him for salvation that only He can, pro- he can provide. And in this passage, Jonah is showing us what it looks like to turn to the Lord. It means that, number one, you recognize your state. Number one, you recognize your state. Number two, you remember your Savior. Remember your Savior. And then number three, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. And I think we see these three movements with Jonah throughout the text. We're not just going to kind of go in succession throughout the text, just with the progression of it, but I think we see these three things, these movements throughout. So point number one, recognize your state. Chapter two begins with Jonah continuing his downward descent toward his death. 
He went down to Joppa, down into the boat to lay down, and has now been thrown overboard, sinking down into the heart of the sea. And initially, we think this has got to be it for Jonah. He's done so. This is it. He gets what he deserves for abandoning the Lord and his commission to Nineveh. Things aren't really looking up for Jonah. They're looking down. (laughs) But then out of nowhere, in verse 17, the Lord sovereignly appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. He refuses to go to a great city, God hurls a great storm, and now he is swallowed by a great fish. Quite possibly the most famous fish in all of history. However, it's helpful to point out right here that the focus isn't upon the fish. Contrary to all of our upbringing, all that we're told about the fish is what? What are we told about the fish? That it was great. That's it. It was great. Many hours have been spent trying to figure out what kind of fish this was and how this could happen, but precious little time has been spent on why the fish was sent to swallow up Jonah in the first place. If we focus on the fish, we're going to miss the greater work of God in the heart of his prophet, who now resides in the heart of the fish. If we focus on the great fish, we will miss our great God behind the fish. As one pastor put it, the Lord appointed the fish not as a vessel of judgment, but as a messenger of mercy. What looked like the end for Jonah is really just the beginning. And that beginning takes place in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And yet in that fish, God is taking his scalpel and he is doing heart surgery on Jonah. Alone, in the dark, with time to think, and in that tomb, the surgeon began his surgery. And it started with Jonah recognizing the state of his heart and the condition that he is in. Look at how the text emphasizes this. Verse 2. In verse 2, Jonah recognizes that he's in distress, that he's in the belly of Sheol. Sheol throughout the Old Testament is known as the realm of the dead. That's where the wicked went after they died. Even the, first, even the fish swallowing Jonah is just one sense, in one sense, just a picture of Jonah's death. He didn't literally die, but it's a picture of that. And we see this idea elsewhere in Scripture with that word swallowing. The waters of the Red Sea were said to have swallowed up the Egyptians in Exodus 15. In Numbers 16, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and his crew. And it was said that they went down to Sheol when the ground swallowed them up. And yet for Jonah, he recognizes that he deserves, his, he deserves judgment for his rebellion. He recognizes that. Look at verse 3. Speaking of the Lord, he says, You, you cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah sees the sovereign hand of God working not just in the wind and the fish, but also in the sailors hurling him into the sea. Behind the sailors, in the waves crashing in over him, was the hand of God. And Jonah believed God to be right in sending these very things. That what got him in that water was his own sin. That Jonah had no excuse 
The Lord was opening Jonah's eyes to see that the Lord owed him nothing. He owed him nothing. Not only did he see that he deserved this, but he also couldn't do anything to fix his situation. He could do nothing. Notice how he talks about this in verse 6. Jonah says that he went down to the land whose bars closed upon him forever. Jonah felt that he was barred from God and condemned for his sin. He recognized that he was as good as dead, and for a dead man, there is no way to fix your condition. For Jonah, he was in this watery grave, and he couldn't get any farther from the Lord. We often talk about hitting rock bottom. Jonah hit rock bottom. And in chapter 1, Jonah looked as if he was comfortable in his sin, asleep at the bottom of the boat. But now his sin has caught up with him, and he's at the end of himself. Jonah is in danger of death as a result of what he believes to be God's judgment on his life in response to his rebellion. His eyes are being opened to the depth of his depravity, the depth of his sinful state. And friends, Jonah isn't the only one who deserves death for their rebellion against God. We all do. All of us are Jonah. His physical descent to the bottom is just a physical picture, really, of a spiritual reality, of a spiritual state, our spiritual state, outside of Christ. By our very nature, we are sinners, and we deserve judgment for our sin against our holy and righteous God, the maker of heaven and earth, as Jonah just said back in chapter 1, verse 9. Our hearts are just like Jonah's, naturally inclined to run from God like a criminal. Spiritually speaking, we all come into this life rock bottom. We all do. And isn't it interesting how sin literally means missing the mark? But we don't miss the mark by inches. We've got our arrow pointed in the opposite direction. Same thing with Jonah running in the opposite direction of God. And because we're sinners, we are separated from intimate access to God's presence, barred from him and deserving of eternal punishment. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Often we miss the severity of our sin and we don't fully grasp it because we confuse it with other things. We often confuse sin with sins. Thinking of human nature to be kind of like a diamond in the rough. It may have some dirt on it once we pull it out, but I mean, hey, once we wipe off that dirt, the diamond is restored to its natural beauty and glory. On the inside, it's immaculate. But the scriptures teach us that we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. That sin isn't just on us as if we can just kind of wipe it off, but sin is in us and sin is of us. Or take the popular notion that confuses sin with negative thinking, that your problem is really just your lack of self-esteem in life. That's your problem. And so in order to address that problem, you need to replace it with positive thinking. You need to think better thoughts. And friends, the world loves this false gospel because it's an easier pill to swallow. It focuses on us and what we can do to change our situation. We can change ourselves with this gospel But that pill in the end leads to death because it provides no need of God's grace in salvation. It blinds us 
from seeing the depth of our depravity and our need to be rescued. Jonah didn't need a pep talk or a motivational speech at the bottom of the sea. That wasn't pulling him out. (laughs) He didn't need that. There was no hope in him trying to rationalize his sin when he had sunk to the bottom. Instead, the Lord brought him to his knees to show him that his greatest need is him. And it's only when this happens that genuine repentance begins. Biblically speaking, repentance means to return, to go back on the road that you came, to turn away from sin into God. And it begins with a heartfelt recognition that you're a sinner in need of saving. Jonah had run from the Lord, but now he was taking the first step back from running from him. As it's been said, it doesn't matter how many steps that you've taken from God. It only takes one to get back. As we've seen in this story, the Lord has put up road signs of mercy, calling Jonah to turn around. And thankfully, he does the same for us. No, it's not a massive fish that swallows you up to show you God's mercy. Instead, it's the brother or sister that are sitting next to you right now. One of the blessings of God's mercy in our lives is the local church. When the Lord called us to himself, he called us into a family. And the family's role is to serve as guardrails, as road signs of God's mercy, calling out to each other, caution, no U-turn, watch out for falling rocks, wrong way. And brothers and sisters, we do this by regularly meeting with one another, regularly asking questions of one another, not just on how you're doing spiritually or if you're reading your Bible lately, but more probing questions. What's one thing the Lord's teaching you about himself from his word? How can you give praise to him from that text? How would you characterize your obedience to Christ? What hinders or helps your walk with Christ? Are there any things that you find hard to receive in reading God's word? How can I help you with that? Brothers and sisters, we need accountability as we seek to follow Jesus. It doesn't matter how long that you've been walking with the Lord. Jonah was a prophet of God, and he sank this low. None of us are beyond hitting rock bottom. We all need accountability. And praise God, he's given us one another. And so go to one another in that. The only hope that we have of turning from our sin is to recognize the state that we're in. And when this happens, our eyes are opened to our need of a Savior. Point number two, remember your Savior. Now we've come right here to the turning point of the story, chapter two. We've come to the turning point of the story. And as a prophet, Jonah would call God's people to return to him. But now Jonah was experiencing this return firsthand. He was moving from a rebellious prophet to a repentant prophet. But how did he return to the Lord? And what did he remember about the Lord that addressed his current condition? That's what we got to think about. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Jonah had turned from the word of the Lord, and now in Jonah chapter 2, 
he was returning to God's word. I don't know if you caught this or not when you read the text this week. This is fascinating. Jonah's prayer in this chapter is shot through with the scriptures, in particular the Psalms. And to be honest, it's really hard to even pinpoint one psalm that encapsulates Jonah's prayer. It's more of a conglomeration of a bunch of different pieces of psalms all stuck together in this prayer. And so just to give you a sampling, Psalm 18, verse 6, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 42, verse 7, All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Psalm 88, 6 and 7, You have put me in the depths of the pit. You overwhelm me with all your waves. And he pulls from a lot, a lot more psalms than even just that. That's just a sampling. But you get the idea. Jonah was now beginning to feel the truth of what these psalmists proclaimed. The rubber was meeting the road for Jonah right here. And God's word put words to his suffering and his pain. God's word was teaching him how to feel rightly. But Jonah didn't just recall that word and just kind of leave it there, stick it on the shelf. No, he put it to use. That word pierced his heart. It gave him words to finally turn and begin to communicate to God in prayer. Verse 1 says that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Verse 2, Jonah called out to the Lord. Just another way of saying that Jonah prayed. Verse 7, his prayer came to the Lord. And oddly enough, in chapter 1, verse 6, the captain of the ship comes to Jonah. And he's saying, call out to your God. <laughs> and Jonah doesn't. Jonah's prayerlessness in chapter 1 was a reflection, a reflection of his own faithlessness in pride. He wasn't seeking the will of the Lord because he rejected the Lord's word. Jonah's sin kept him from seeing his need for the Lord. But now in chapter 2, nowhere to look but up, Jonah remembers the Lord in prayer. And this is a good reminder of what prayer really is. This is what prayer is. It's the communication of our faith to God in response to our knowledge of God. It's the communication of our faith to God in response to our knowledge of God. As others have put throughout the years, prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. Jonah is now turning to the other side of the repentance coin. He's turning away from sin, but now he's turning to God in faith. And so he does this by remembering the Lord, his knowledge of the Lord and who he is. And what does he remember? What does he remember about the Lord? Verse 1, that the Lord is his God. The Lord is his God. Now that is a downright stunning statement of the utter mess that Jonah has made of his life in chapter 1. It's an astounding statement. Jonah has made a mess of his life and the audacity to call out to the Lord and say, you are my God. But friends, don't forget that the Lord didn't run from Jonah. <laughs> Jonah was running from the Lord. In fact, the Lord was running after Jonah. The Lord hadn't given up on him, and indeed he wouldn't 
Because this is who the Lord is. This is his very heart toward his people. When the scriptures use the name Lord in all capital letters right there, it's speaking about the God who enters into a personal covenant with his people. This is a covenant initiating and covenant keeping God. He's the God of Israel. And for all who come to fear him, as we saw in the last chapter, they are then his people. Jonah wasn't delusional. The Lord was his God, not because of Jonah's faithfulness to the Lord, but because of the Lord's faithfulness to Jonah. Brothers and sisters, in your distress, in your suffering, in your sin, do you still believe the Lord to be your God? Do you cry out to the Lord, my God? Do you believe that when you're in your sin, when you're suffering? One of the greatest lies that we often tell ourselves in our distress is that God really doesn't want to hear from us again. He doesn't want to hear the same old song, right? The same old I'm, I'm sorry speech. And yet that's not the heart of God toward his children. God disciplines his children out of mercy in order to keep them from judgment, to keep them from destruction. He does that out of his love toward his children. And you remember, don't you, what Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, about this God. You are a gracious God, immerciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. The Lord's heart doesn't shrink toward you in your sin. It's actually your own heart shrinking toward the Lord. But you might ask, well, how can we be sure of that? Well, look at what else Jonah remembers along with the Lord in this passage. In verse 4, he says, I am driven from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, when I was fainting away, I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Where? Into your holy temple. Not only is it incredible that the Lord hears Jonah's voice in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, but that his prayer actually came into the Lord's temple, to the very throne room of God. The temple was where God's holy presence resided among his people. But in order to dwell in his presence, a priest had to make a sacrifice to pay for sin so that God's people could dwell with him. Only if a sacrifice was made for sin could God's people be in his presence and have intimate access with him. And Jonah knew this, which is why Jonah looked there. As a prophet, he knew he needed a substitutionary sacrifice to pay for his sin. And yet Jonah, for Jonah, he didn't know, he didn't know what we know. Praise God. He didn't know about the final priest who would be the once-for-all sacrifice to pay for our sins. Instead, the Lord's heart toward Jonah was extravagant, and his heart is extravagant to us because the blood of bulls and goats no longer pays for sin once for all time. Only Christ's blood is able to do that. Brothers and sisters, we don't, we don't have to aim our prayer to the temple in Jerusalem because we have access to God's throne of grace right now because Christ's blood has sprinkled us clean from our sin. 
And this is how you can be sure of the Lord's heart not shrinking toward you. (laughs) He has sacrificed his one and only son in your place. The Lord's heart is extravagant in grace toward you. We can say along with Jonah, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought my life up from the pit. Repentance begins by recognizing our our sinful state and relishing in the free gift of God's grace toward us in Christ. Grace is what makes repentance possible. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait until we hit rock bottom to go to the Lord. Everybody knows, you know, like the student or, you know, who calls out to their parents, needing money all the time or needing dad to come fix the tire, the flat tire on the car. We don't have to wait until we hit rock bottom or until when we need something to go to the Lord. We have access right now. We can go to him right now. And the means that he gives us, the Lord gives us to do this, comes to us really in his word, in prayer, in community. Each of these actually help us to know what to pray and how to pray when we're in our sins, and our sin is keeping us from praying. And so I want to encourage you to gather with the body to pray. Come on Sunday night as we seek to pray for one another. Go to the Wednesday night prayer gathering. Go to your life group and pray for one another. By doing so, you're hearing God's people pray God's word back to him. And it's that word that can convict your own heart to go to the Lord. You're hearing about the freeness of God's grace and your need to hear that over and over again happens whenever you gather with people to pray. We gain a desire to pray when we gather with others to pray. After all, the body of Christ is how we see the heart of Christ on display. As an old theologian once said, we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. And part of that gazing process happens whenever we gather to pray. Well, the evidence of a heart that's been transformed by grace is that it recognizes the state, it recognizes its sinful state that it's in, in need of a Savior, and that it's grateful, that it's grateful. That's point number three, rejoice in your salvation. This psalm has now come full circle. Yes, it is a psalm. It's come full circle. What began as a voice of turmoil in verse 2 ends with a voice of thanksgiving in verse 9. And Jonah is laying out for us two responses to the salvation that only God can provide. Look at me at verse 8. Jonah begins by saying, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In chapter 1, as Jonah was on the ship with those pagan sailors scared for their lives, he would have had no problem pointing the finger at them and saying this verse to them. You all are forsaking the hope of steadfast love, you idol worshipers. He would have had no problem with that. But what God was showing Jonah was that even as one of God's chosen people, he needed this verse as a reminder just as much as they did. After all, Jonah was forfeiting the hope of God's steadfast love whenever he ran from the Lord. 
And now, no. He didn't, he didn't go and try to, try to bow down to a physical idol. For an Israelite to bow down to an idol was a violation of God's covenant. And that's what God's steadfast love is all about. It's a covenantal love. It's only for those whom God has joined to himself in an unbreakable covenant bond. And to run after an idol would mean forfeiting one's hope of God's steadfast love. But here's the thing. Though Jonah could have just sat there and pointed his finger, right? He could have just sat there and pointed his finger at those dirty, rotten pagans. Jonah himself had a dirty little secret. He had a dirty little secret. And it was that he was just as guilty of idolatry as they were. Because idolatry isn't just bowing down to a physical idol, but loving or trusting or obeying anything above God. To put it broadly, it's worshiping anything above God. Do you desire your retirement, your education, your family, your career, efficiency even, at work? I feel this at times. Do you desire that above God? Okay, that's an idol, and you're an idolater. And so, friend, you may be here this morning, and you may be forsaking the hope of steadfast love that is extended to you, and I pray that you would not leave here in that same state and condition. I don't want you to leave here in that condition. But there is a difference, just like there was for Jonah, that you need to see. And that is the need for repentance. That's what Jonah came to see. Our God is a jealous God because he has exclusive, inalienable rights over our worship. This jealousy isn't some just kind of unrighteous, insecure, oh, I'm losing my fan base to the God next door kind of jealousy. It's a loving and a righteous jealousy because he knows that our deepest joy is intricately tied up in him. God wants our best, and our best is him. And so don't forsake the covenant love of God that you can receive in Christ this morning for an idol that just repays your worship with eternal death. That makes no sense. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ as the one who can raise your life up from the pit of destruction. Trust in him. If unfaithfulness to the Lord looks like idolatry, well then what should characterize the one who has the hope of steadfast love? What should characterize our lives as the people of God? Look at verse 9. Jonah says, but I, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The evidence of a heart that's been transformed by God's grace is that it's grateful. It's that it's grateful. Jonah has recognized his sinful state. He's looked to the Lord to save him, and now as a result, he is giving thanks to God for the salvation that only God can provide. And did you notice something right here? Jonah has not been spit out onto dry land yet. He's still in the smelly belly of the stinky fish. This is not, this is not a place that you would think that gratitude will arise from my soul to God. This ain't it. 
But why? Why this gratitude? Because the fish was a messenger of God's mercy to Jonah. God had brought his life up from death, from the bottom of the sea. And brothers and sisters, just as Jonah was safe from death in the belly of the fish, so are we safe from destruction in being united to Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jonah understood that the real deliverance wasn't the one from the fish, but the reconciliation that only God could provide to those who turn from their sin and trust in him. And the good news finally struck a chord in Jonah's heart. He had experienced the mercy and grace of the Lord, and the Lord called him to proclaim it, and he was. No longer did he see the Lord as just Israel's God. No, God is the saving God, because salvation belongs to the Lord. No one else can save. He is both just and merciful and saves whomever he wills. Jonah no longer just believed this to be true, but he believed it to be true and good, which was not the case in chapter 1. And the response of one who has been rescued by grace is gratitude. It's gratitude. Brothers and sisters, would you say that gratitude characterizes your life? And what does that say about the, your grasp of the gospel? What does it say about your grasp of the gospel? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, that ingratitude was at the heart of the fall of mankind. That although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, Romans 1, 21, or give thanks to Him. We cannot honor the Lord without giving thanks to Him for this extravagant grace in mercy, in our salvation. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, that thanksgiving actually keeps us from idolatry and forfeiting the hope of steadfast love. That's what's happening in 1 Timothy 4. So understand, Jonah had a theology of salvation. He knew about salvation. It belonged to the Lord. But it didn't affect his life in any positive manner until he was at the bottom of the sea. And so, brothers and sisters, is your gratitude based upon how you feel at the moment? Or is it based upon who the Lord says that he is and how he has acted on your behalf in all of his merciful ways for your good, even though it may not feel good in the moment? We see this with Jesus before he went to the cross. What is he doing? The Last Supper. He's giving thanks to God. He's giving thanks to the Father before he goes to the cross. And I think one of the ways to go about cultivating gratitude in our life is by taking a pen and just writing down all of the ways that you can be thankful to God from the passage that you're reading in your Bible this morning, tomorrow morning, and the next morning. Just take a pen and write down all of the ways that you can be thankful to God. The ways that he's shown grace and mercy to you. And then begin to write down all of the ways that you've even just seen God's hand at work in your life, throughout your life. This is going to keep you busy for days. And guess what? You still won't even remember all of them. You won't. You can't. 
because your mind is finite and God is infinite. And yet he shows mercy to you over and over again. And yet we miss it. And yet I don't want you to miss it. Write down all of the ways that you can be grateful to God in every season of life. We won't cultivate gratitude if we don't look for the infinite number of ways that we can be grateful. And our gratitude won't stop there. But it's going to begin to actually shape the way that we live as we see with Jonah. He declares that he will sacrifice to the Lord, that he will pay his vows to the Lord. Jonah is giving his pledge of obedience to what the Lord has asked him to do. He recognizes that the Lord has saved him, and guess what? He's going to Nineveh, chapter 3. He's going. And what we see here is that gratitude for our salvation actually serves as a catalyst for mission, which we're going to be talking about next week. When we rightly understand what God has done for us in his son, it moves us to want to proclaim his son among the nations. That's what happens. The Lord wanted Jonah to experience his mercy and grace because he was about to go and proclaim that mercy and grace to those Ninevite pagans that he once hated. The Lord was preparing Jonah for his mission. And so it is the same for us. When we rightly grasp the beauty of the gospel, it will serve as fuel in proclaiming the gospel because it has captured our hearts. But what is it that will vindicate Jonah's proclamation to Nineveh in chapter 3? What is it? Well, we just read a moment ago, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man, that is Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was speaking about his own. He was predicting his own death and resurrection. And Jonah was a picture of that death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, just as God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah up, and then he commanded, he spoke to the fish. And that fish let Jonah out. One day, Christ is going to return with a cry of command, and he is going to speak to your grave, and you will come out, and you will rise to be forever with the Lord. That's going to happen. And this is only a foreshadowing of that greater day. Brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in salvation when we turn to the Lord of salvation. And our testimonies of God's grace speak to this very thing. Our testimonies are not about us, but rather about God. He is the hero of the grace that he has shown to us in our life. And so let's go to him now in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious and mercifully, Father, merciful Father, we give praise to you because you are the one who has res rescued us. You are the one who has resurrected our life from the pit of destruction. Lord, we had no way to fix our condition. 
We deserved your eternal condemnation. And yet by your mercy, your glorious mercy, Lord, you saved us. Lord, please develop in our own hearts a heart of gratitude for your extravagant grace that you have shown in our lives. Lord, help us to grapple with our own sin in the depth of our depravity so that we can see how glorious the light of the gospel is in Christ. And Lord, we pray that that right there would propel us and move us and serve as a catalyst for going and proclaiming and preaching Christ to our neighbor this week. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.